You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of John. Here's Nate. Today we come to the close of John's Gospel, John chapter 21. When you study John chapter 20, it seems as if John is finished recording his gospel. Let me read to you again verse 30 and 31 of this previous chapter. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. To me, this reads like a perfect conclusion to John's gospel. Everything that he's recorded up to this point, every sign, every miracle, every teaching, every confrontation, every conversation that has occurred has all been designed so that the reader, upon reading them, thinking about them and the implications attached to them, would say to themselves, this Jesus must be the Christ, the Messiah. They must be the Son of God, which of course, in that mindset, in that era, and according to John's mindset and his readership and the way that he's presenting it, to declare Jesus to be the Son of God is tantamount to declaring him to be God the Son. So, You're supposed to, as a response to this entire book, John is saying, respond with Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is God, and by believing that, John says, you will have life in his name. Sounds like a perfect conclusion to this book. However, there is a 21st chapter. And in this 21st chapter, there are some important narrative themes that are wrapped up. What do I mean? Well, we saw Peter. Peter had told Jesus, I will not forsake you. I will not deny you. And Jesus had told Peter, no, you'll deny me three times before the rooster crows twice. And of course, we saw Peter very pointedly, blatantly, and angrily deny Christ in a very public sense by a little fire warming himself in the courtyard of the high priest. So chapter 21, in large part, is a wrapping up of that theme. And there's another appearance of Christ, another resurrection appearance. But in large part, this is Jesus appearing to Peter, to his disciples, and restoring Peter back into the ministry. It's a grace-filled chapter. Let's pick it up in verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. Now, the Sea of Tiberias is just another title for the Sea of Galilee, and it was named after Tiberius Caesar. And so, this is a Rome-honoring title for the Sea of Galilee. And so they go up there. And of course, in Matthew chapter 28, verse 7, you discover that an angel actually announced to the disciples to go to Galilee where they would meet with Jesus. 
So they've seen him in the upper room. They've seen him with Thomas. Mary Magdalene has seen him. These are some of the appearances recorded by John. But here in chapter 21, they go up to the Sea of Galilee and he revealed himself in this way, John records. Simon Peter, verse 2, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. So you've got seven men gathered together, Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, James and John, who were the sons of Zebedee, and two other unnamed, unknown disciples. And Simon Peter, verse 3, said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now this had been a dramatic and traumatic season for these disciples. I mean, just imagine, they just a few short days ago, it seems, had gone into Jerusalem with Jesus. And after three years of walking with him and talking to him and growing to expect and anticipate that he was the Messiah to come, the promised one in the Old Testament scriptures, the coming king. And to have that belief begin to well up within your heart and to walk into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and have people throwing down palm branches and clothes and and to be shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, save now. To have all of this happen, you would almost imagine that at that moment, their hearts would have been soaring with anticipation. But then Jesus went into the temple. He rebuked the religious leaders. He drove out the money changers. He really didn't do exactly what they thought he would do. Went back into a little bit of obscurity for a few days, spent time with him. And over the weekend of the Passover, the mood became ominous. And he began to teach them and instruct them and give them these directions about his departure. And after all of this, Jesus then is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. They take him out of your sight. The next thing you know, you hear or see that he is being crucified. He's buried in the tomb. And then a woman reports that she's seen him risen from the dead or that the tomb is empty. And you then see him a couple of times, once in an upper room, once with Thomas. You hear other reports of those who said, yes, we saw him on the road. And your heart is just really going up and down. And so Peter here, up in Galilee now, looks at this other group, six other disciples besides himself, and says, I am going fishing. And it's impossible, really, to decipher the exact tone with which Peter was making that proclamation. Some people berate Peter for going fishing, saying that he was taking up his old life once again. On the other hand, there are practical considerations for a man in his position to provide for himself, to provide for his family, to work with his hands. There's nothing wrong with that. But I think there's something probably in between. I think this man, with sorrow in his heart and confusion in his mind, is thinking to himself, what do I do? The only thing I can do is the only thing I know to do. He gets his gear together. 
He looks at the other guys, and, and I think with a little bit of defeat in his voice, he says, I am going fishing. To me, I think there's a part of Peter that is moving on. He knows Jesus has risen, but his own failure, I think, in his own heart, has disqualified him. He feels that he's unfit to serve the Lord and has not fulfilled the Lord's expectations for his life. But as we're going to see in this chapter, there is great grace from the Lord for this man. So, as a sign of his leadership, when Peter says, I'm going fishing, the others say, we will go with you. <laughs> so, he is a leader, whether he likes it or not. Now, just as day was breaking, they, of course, in verse 3, caught nothing. But in verse 4, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Now, this could be because of a blindness upon their hearts that had happened in some of the appearances of Christ, but it also could be a very natural explanation. There they are at night. It's early in the morning. The day is breaking. Maybe difficult to make out the figure on the beach far away from them. And so the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. Now this scene is fascinating to me. Here you have Jesus on the shore. He calls out to them. They don't know who he is. He says, children, do you have any fish? Now this would be a natural question to come from the shore to a boat out in the water. Perhaps a potential customer. Hey, children, do you have any fish? I need to make a purchase. How has it gone? Do you have any fish? Should I wait for you to come to shore? Or will you come here empty-handed? Not that that's the way that Jesus was asking it, but it makes sense why they would respond. They say, no, we don't have any. And so then this man on the shore, who we know to be Jesus, but who at this point they do not know, says to them, well, cast your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Now, the fascinating thing to me here is that they actually listen to this guy. They don't know that it's Jesus. They just think it's a man on the shore, but yet they listen to him. I don't know what this says about the mental state of the disciples. Perhaps it speaks of an incredible discouragement that had filled their hearts. So discouraged that there's no life in them left. There's no fight whatsoever. And they just say, fine, the stranger on the seashore, he's telling us to cast our nets. Well, why not? We have failed at everything else up to this point. Let's just do it. Or perhaps this speaks of just a lack of fight or will in them at all. Or perhaps they're so starved for some level of leadership. I don't know why they did it, but they did it. Perhaps it was just the authority and the voice of Christ. And although they did not recognize him, they responded to the authority embedded within his voice. But they cast their net on the right side and they bring in this huge haul. They can't bring it into the boat because of the quantity of the fish. And that disciple, verse 7, whom Jesus loved, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. <laughs> John, at that moment, recognized what was going on. 
he thought to himself, listen, something like this happened to us years ago. He would remember all the way back into Luke chapter 5, a moment when Jesus was teaching the crowds and the multitudes and his popularity was so heightened that he had to one day teach a message from Peter's boat pushed out a little off the shore in order to get a little bit of space. And upon conclusion of his message, he said to Peter, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Now at that moment, Peter then responded and said, Master, we worked all night long. We caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the nets. A great response. They go out, they cast down their nets, and they caught so many fish that their nets began to break. Their partners came out to help them and they so filled their boats that their boats even began to sink. And Peter, at a response at that moment, back in Luke chapter 5, fell down at Jesus' knees and said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. This was enough for Peter to make a statement of deity towards Christ. And so John remembers that moment more than likely and says, this is the Lord. He's the one that told us to cast our nets on the right side of the boat. I remember years ago, something similar to this happening. And he recognized the Lord. And upon announcing it is the Lord, it says that when Simon Peter heard in John chapter 21, that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. So John tells us, you know, well, you know, there's Peter, very compulsive, impetuous. He hears that it's Jesus. He throws himself into the ocean. But the rest of us, we just took the boat. We were only a hundred yards away from the shore and somebody needed to come back with the boat and all of those fish. But this would, of course, be a great lesson for these disciples on fruitfulness that only Jesus can give. They went out in that boat and tried to fish in their own strength and power and might, and they caught nothing. But nevertheless, at the direction of the Lord who was there on the shore, they caught much. This would be a picture of their ministry in the book of Acts. Trying to do it on their own, they would get nowhere. But if they trusted in the Lord, who, although invisible to them and unknown by them, would still direct affairs and speak to their hearts and lead them by the power of his spirit, if they would trust him, well, they would bring in a great haul and a great catch. It speaks to us of ditching our self-sufficiency and relying upon the Lord. And so when they got out, verse 9, on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place. Now, the last time we saw a charcoal fire was when Peter had denied Jesus. It's reminiscent of that scene. And Jesus had fish here in verse 9 laid out on it. So he had fish that they had not caught. He didn't really need their fish. He could get fish with them or without them. And he also had bread. And Jesus, verse 10, said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. So Peter goes out, gets the net, 
153 fish. Now, the fish weren't likely all that big, but still 153 fish, that's a heavy net. And Peter must have been a very strong man who was greatly energized at this moment to be able to haul this net to shore. Now, some have tried to figure out what is the significance of the fact that John lists that there are 153 fish. And over the course of church history, there have been wild guesses and, you know, numerical equations advanced and pushed forward to try to say, this is what the 153 fish mean. I think that the reason John recorded that there were 153 fish is because he discovered that there were 153 fish. And I think that the reason that they counted is because they were ex-fishermen. They were astounded at this catch. and They wanted to know, how many fish did we just haul in? This is what a fisherman does. And so they count them. Peter brings them to shore. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, verse 12, come and have breakfast. Just the friendship that Jesus invites these men into. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish, this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now, you can't help but notice, and I should mention the tension that is still there. There is this tension in the post-resurrection appearances of Christ. I just this thing of, you know, whether it's Mary Magdalene seeing Jesus, thinking he's the gardener, not knowing it's him, hearing his voice, hearing her say Mary, and then realizing it's Jesus. Something like, it seems like scales fall from her eyes and she has that moment. Or the disciples on the road to Emmaus. They talk with Jesus. They hear from Jesus. He explains to them the Old Testament. Now these things had to come to pass. And it's not until he departs from them that their eyes are open and they realize that it was Jesus. And here again, there's this moment. They know that it's Jesus, but they dare not ask, who are you? And they, they don't ask because they know, but there was this thing that made them want to ask, but they dared not ask. Just this tension in the resurrection appearances of Christ. There was something, I think, different yet altogether familiar about Jesus. And I wonder at times if that's what it will be like throughout all of eternity, both with our Lord, where we recognize him, but I wonder with others that we know and that we love. There will be some kind of similarity, yet a great difference. And so they sit there and eat breakfast with Jesus. Now, verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? more than these an incredible question from jesus do you love me simon more than these now when he says more than these who is he referring to or what is he referring to is he referring to the boats and the nets and the fishing equipment or the fish themselves you know simon peter look do you love me more than that old position and career that you used to hold Maybe that's what he's asking, that it could be framed that way. Or it could also read that he's saying, Simon Peter, do you 
love me more than you love these disciples. You know, you're here fishing with them, hanging out with them, working with them, but do you love me more than you love them? But I think there's another option, and it's personally the one that I lean towards, and it's that, just really simply, in the other Gospels, Peter had announced, even if all of them deny you, I will not deny you. And I think when Jesus asks the question, do you love me more than these? He's really asking a searching question of Peter. Peter, really, do you have a love for me that is stronger than their love is for me? But do you really want to put yourself in that position of supremacy? And not with condemnation, but he's asking, do you love me? And, and he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, verse 16, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. So first, feed my lambs. Secondly, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, verse 17, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything and you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now, the question is, what is happening here? What kind of transaction is occurring between Jesus and Peter? One thing I should mention is that in this line of questioning, there are a couple of different words for love that are used. The first two times that Jesus says, to Peter, do you love me? He uses the Greek word agape. The third time that he says, Peter, do you love me? He uses the Greek word phileo. Every time that Peter says, Lord, you know that I love you, he uses the word phileo and does not use the word agape. Now, because of this, some have surmised that what's happening here is that Jesus is saying, Peter, do you agape me and have believed that agape is such a strong word for love? And Peter is saying in his response, Lord, I phileo you. In other words, you know, my love isn't as great as I thought it was. It's a lesser quality than agape. It's phileo love. And then the lesson then would be that Jesus comes in and says, well, Peter, do you phileo me then? You know, I know you don't have that higher love, but do you have that lower love? And that that statement so broke Peter up. And he said, Lord, you know that I phileo you. And that may be the truth. That may be the Lord working graciously in Peter's life and in Peter's heart. But the words agape and phileo, at least in their usage by John, are interchangeable words. In this gospel, the father is said to have loved the son, both with an agape love and a phileo love. Jesus is said to love Lazarus with both an agape love and a phileo love. And even in the New Testament, agape love isn't always higher than phileo love. For example, 2 Timothy 4 verse 10, Demas agaped the present world. He had an agape love that was sinful for the present world. So some will argue that agape is greater. Some will argue that phileo is greater. 
I think the key to this text is found personally in verse 17. Because it's there that Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time. Think about the third time. How many times had Peter denied Christ? Three times. I think that what's happening here is Peter knows full well that he has denied the Lord three times and the Lord is giving him an opportunity three times to confess the Lord before these other disciples. And that confession was a restorative confession. And Peter was so broken by this grace that Jesus was expressing to him that he begins to weep. This is what the grace of God, when truly received by a person, causes them to do. They break down with a poverty of spirit that humbles them. The grace of God would never make a person say, well, we're not all perfect and what I did wasn't that bad. That's not a person who's received the grace of God. A person who's received the grace of God for and in their sin is broken by it. And Peter was broken by that grace. And so Jesus restored him that final and third time and said, feed my sheep. He put Peter back in the game. There is hope for us because the Lord loves to use broken men who have been truly humbled by the grace of God. Jesus then said to Peter in verse 18, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you to where you do not want to go. This sounds at first glance a little like old age, but in verse 19 it says, This he said to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, Follow me. Now, this may sound ominous to us. Gosh, knowing that you would die basically by crucifixion. But for Peter, <laughs> what an encouragement. Lord, I've been restored before. You've said great things about me before. You've told me that you're going to work in my life in powerful ways before. And I failed you. Who's to say I'm not going to do this again? And then the Lord says to him, Peter, you're going to go to your death glorifying me. You are going to make it to the finish line, bud. And so the encouragement from Jesus to this man, Peter. Now Peter turned, verse 20, and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had been reclining at table close to him, and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? So he turns around and sees John. And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So Peter looks and sees John and says, well, Lord, you've just told me how I'm going to die. What about this guy? And Jesus basically rebukes Peter right away and says, what is that to you? You follow me. It's really no concern or business of yours what my plan is for his life. Your concern is what is my plan for your life, Peter? And I think Christians would do well to quench the sin of comparison. Comparison can at times be so detrimental to our joy. You're cruising along just fine, so glad to see what God is doing in your life. But then you see someone else and what God is doing in their life and the jealousy begins to creep into your heart. 
And Jesus says to Peter, you follow me. So John says, the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain Thank until I come, what is that to you? For additional John resources and teachings, I imagine he was fairly annoyed us. with Please this rumor that he was not going to die. He says that's not what Jesus was saying. He didn't say I would live until he returned. He just said, what is that to you? This is the disciple, verse 24, who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. In other words, I'm an eyewitness and we know that his testimony is true, verse 24. Now there, verse 25, are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. The Gospel of John. God bless you and amen.